Dr. Arthur Perry, he's one of the top plastic surgeons. He's got offices in Manhattan, New Jersey. You know, and he's been doing a show here on WOR for years and years and years. Very uh, popular show and a great plastic surgeon. Everybody has questions on this subject, so uh, he's the guy to ask. Dr. Arthur Perry. The public wants to know. The public doesn't give a damn. And I went to his office, and I said, mm. I said, look at my face. And he goes, yeah, look at your face. What can I do with your face? What can you do with his face? I go like that. I swear to God. I go, look at this. I'm getting old. Like I said, I want to maybe could fix it up a little bit. Dr. Oz, are you there? I'm here, Arthur, and I want to get applaud you having worked with you on a book and numerous other activities. You want to talk to Arthur Perry? The best in plastic surgery. Remarkable knowledge, but also your grace in delivering content, which is why it's been a blessing to have you on my show so many times. When I was a resident at the University of Chicago, we had a... That means you're smart. As a really, really gifted physician, uh, I want to pay you the, the highest tribute I can give to a surgeon, which is when people come to you, they don't come for an operation, they come for an opinion. And that's why I trust you with my uh, friends and relatives. I didn't realize we were going to get the Michael Jordan of plastic surgeons. 90210 bows to this guy. And welcome. This is Dr. Arthur Perry. This is What's Your Wrinkle right here on WOR. I hope everybody's having a great weekend. A, uh, an early summer summary weekend, I think. I'm co-hosting tonight with Susan Warner again, back by popular demand. Hello, Susan. Hello, Dr. Perry. We had so much fun last week with our live studio audience. I had to make sure you came back for yet another week. And we're broadcasting again from the Hamptons. And, uh, you know, nice and cool. I think it's about 45 degrees. It's going to snow tonight here. It's gorgeous here. It's 70s. It's too cold. <laughs> well, all right. This isn't the weather report. This is What's Your Wrinkle, the show about you, the show about what you look like, the show about your wrinkles, your jowls, your small breasts, your large breasts, your droopy breasts, or your protuberant belly after pregnancy. It's the show about fat on your hips and fat in your neck. You know, I saw a giant turkey in the uh, Hamptons this morning. I think it, it had a turkey gobbler like we talk about all the time. And, uh, and it got me thinking, and I said, you know, we really need to talk tonight about facelifts again. Susan says, well, we've, we've talked we've about facelifts. We've talked about facelifts. Yes, but there's some new information about facelifts. Oh, do tell us. And it was a study by a, a friend of yours, actually, Alan Matarasso. Oh, published a good friend study. of mine, wonderful yep. guy. And, and Alan, uh, who's been on the show in the past several times, published a paper on facelift surgery this week in the journal. So we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about rhinoplasty, which is probably my favorite operation and you know it as a nose job. Oh, but that doesn't sound so good. It, 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 it's so derogatory, a nose job. It sounds a lot nicer if we say nasal reshaping. But there's also something new about noses tonight. We're going to talk about how what could be new about noses. There's something new. A nose by any other name is a nose, Dr. Perry. <laughs> All righty. I've got a... <laughs> All right, cut her mic. <laughs> All right, so we're we're are we going to finish our spring cleaning? We've been doing this for a month, and we keep getting a lot of phone calls. I like taking the phone calls, so we will take them. But spring cleaning is almost over because it's almost summer. Uh, but we'll talk about the final procedures that you need to do to have your face, your skin, you look as good as possible, and get ready. For the beach season, which is right around the corner. I'm board-certified plastic surgeon. almost forgot what I was. Dr. Arthur Perry. Been host of this show for 17 years on Saturday evenings, uh, along with Noah in the studio and Susan and I in uh, some remote location. Today, it's 
the Hamptons. We're here to take your phone calls. 800-321-0710 is the phone number here at WOR. 800-321-0710. We're giving away bottles of Soft Time tonight. Soft Time is the moisturizer that you won't give up even if you don't want a moi- don't need a moisturizer. You might want it. And that's exactly why I created Soft Time because so many women and some men, but so many women love the feeling of moisturizer on your skin. So we're giving away bottles of Soft Time. Soft Time, I created, I think, the best moisturizer. I'm biased. I created it. But it's got things in it that are so good for your skin. It's got ceramides. Those uh, are important to maintain the barrier function of your skin. Do you know what the barrier function of your skin is, Susan? I don't. Tell us. Tell us. Well, you're supposed to at least guess. Okay. Guess. All right. Well, basically, your skin is designed to keep the bad things out and the good things in. It's that simple. It's that simple. Your epidermis is the waterproofing layer of your skin, and the dermis is the structural layer. So the dermis is collagen. It's what your shoes are made of, your leather coat. That's, that's collagen. So, But what happens is, you know, as you expose your skin to soaps, not my soap, but other soaps and other toxins. And, you know, you wash your face. Uh, you use those alcohol wipes on your face as, as so many. I do. I All don't. Right. Well, you know, with COVID, you know, we do these things. And it really deteriorates the barrier function of your skin. The function of the skin that keeps the water content high keeps the toxins out. So when we use a good moisturizer that has ceramides, then uh, we, uh, we actually improve the barrier function of the skin. So today we're going to talk about your skin. We're going to talk about facelifts. We're going to talk about breast augmentations. And we're also going to take your phone calls, 800-321-0710. We're speaking tonight with Susan Warner, who Susan has her own podcast. And, uh, and I think a lot of you have started listening to it. Susan is Suddenly Single. That's the name. She is also, but that is the name of her podcast. And you can uh, get it. Where can you get it, Susan? Apple, Spotify, Google Podcast, iHeartRadio. That's the most important one. We are on iHeart tonight, and uh, it is the most important uh, podcaster. So you can get Susan's, uh, and you just put in uh, Susan is Suddenly Single, or you put in Susan Warner. SusanSWarner.com will get you there. SusanSWarner.com. And uh, this week, what's it about, Susan? Ah, putting me on the spot, huh? This week, um, we did use your words last week, and this week is about whether or not we need people. And um, the thesis is that just because you're independent doesn't mean you don't need people. I do, I know. Okay, well, that's good. I need people. And we also need, we have Winston, who's a member of our studio audience today. Winston is a, uh, what kind of dog is Winston's he? Winston's a Scotch Terrier. Yep, yep. It's, uh, it's mom and pop here in the uh, Hamptons. We've got the dog, but we want your phone calls. 800-321-0710 is the phone number here at WOR. So, rhinoplasty, my favorite operation. And... Uh, and, you know, rhinoplasties are nasal reshaping operations, and uh, they've been done for about 100 years in the United States, and they are the most difficult procedure in all of cosmetic surgery, which is why I enjoy them. You know, it, it takes 100 operations on average for a plastic surgeon to do 100 rhinoplasty operations before they develop a proficiency in that operation. It is a very difficult operation. So if you're... You know, if you go to someone who's right out of residency and you're rhinoplasty number three, well, <laughs> yeah, they may do a very good job on you. But, but you know, there's 
an awful lot of different possible steps with rhinoplasty. In fact, there are hundreds and hundreds of possible steps that are done in any rhinoplasty. So what is it? You know, most people who come in to me as a plastic surgeon for a rhinoplasty have a large nose. My typical patient might be a woman somewhere over age 14, usually between the ages of 14 and 22 or so, maybe 24, maybe right out of college. Uh, you know, and, and that's a typical patient, but I get an awful lot of women who come in in their 50s and 60s because what happens to the nose is kind of interesting. The cartilages continue to grow in the nose. Let me see your nose, Susan. Yeah. Okay. We won't talk about that. All right. So, no, you have a very nice nose. I like nose. my nose. You have a very nice nose, but your cartilages will continue to grow until the day you die. And for the most part, the bones of your nose do not continue to grow. So what happens is those cartilages, they grow a little and they thicken a bit. And women who say that they had cute little noses when they were 20 often have bulbous or boxy tips when they're in their 60s. And so it's very common to do a rhinoplasty uh, in your 60s. And sometimes there are different types of operations. Sometimes they're not as involved as what I might do in the 20s. We might just operate on the cartilages of the tip of the nose and make them a little bit more slender and narrow the tip of the nose. But that's the minority of cases. Usually what we need to do with a rhinoplasty is analyze the, the bones of the nose and the cartilage of the nose. So Susan, I'm going to take you through this now. Now I want you to feel your nose. And those of you out there, if you're not driving, you can do the same thing. So between your eyes, you feel the nasal bones. They're the most easily broken bone of the body. And sometimes we break those bones and we don't even know it. I actually watched my wife have her nose broken by my little daughter Meredith when she was about a year or so old. She was on her lap and my daughter whacked her in the face. And I, it was the only time in my career that I actually saw the nose being broken. Usually they come to my office to have it fixed, but I saw it. It was kind of over to the side. I brought my wife into the bathroom and pushed the bones right back, <laughs> put a little splint on her nose, and uh, that was it. Uh, ne Meredith never broke her nose again. All right. So the bones of the nose easily broken. As you slide your fingers down to the middle of your nose, you feel something different. It's cartilage. And it's fairly rigid cartilage, but it does move. It does move. And uh, that that middle part of the the nose, yeah, it'll move a bit if you whack your nose, but then slide your fingers down all the way to the tip of your nose and you feel a very mobile cartilage and that's called, here's your word for the evening, it's called the ALAR cartilage, A-L-A-R. You know, plastic surgeons and anatomists, we have very fancy words for everything in the body just to confuse people. But the reason your nose is designed that way with a very mobile tip is so that when you brush your nose like you just did or you get whacked in the nose accidentally by someone or a door hits you in the nose, you don't necessarily break the nose. The cartilage is very plastic and it has nothing to do with plastic surgery, but it's very, very plastic and very, very springy. And so it'll spring one direction and spring right back without breaking. So that's good. But we often do break our nose, and we often do break cartilages. And when I do a rhinoplasty, which is that nasal reshaping operation, I often will find things 
that were unexpected. So I might ask people beforehand, have you ever broken your nose? And they'll say no. And I see a cracked cartilage in the, uh, in the middle of the nose. And I have to be able to think on my feet and do something to preserve that cartilage and make the nose look as good as possible. So one of the things about rhinoplasties that make it an interesting operation for me is that there is no x-ray, there's no CAT scan, no MRI that can show me what the cartilages look like underneath the skin. So I have to do it all by feel. So when I see you for your preoperative visit, you tell me what bothers you about your nose. And usually it's that your nose is too large. You might have a hump. You might have a bulbous tip. And I analyze your nose. I take photographs. I put your photographs, both two-dimensional standard photographs, and now the new three-dimensional photographs. I'm getting the brand-new Vectra camera next week. That's the 3D camera. And uh, in that camera, I can turn your head side to side, and uh, we, can, we can see your pictures in 3D and alter your photographs, alter that 3D image of you. So we'll take that, and I will alter the image, your image, in front of you in the consultation room, and I want you to set, tell me, is that what uh, looks good to you? Is that not what looks good? What I don't want you to do is bring in a photograph of uh, Angelina Jolie or Cheryl Teagues. That's dangerous. Do you think that's dangerous? Cheryl Teagues. Cheryl Teagues. Well, that's, that dates me, right? You know, here <laughs> sure I am. does. I'm an older guy. Cheryl Teagues. She was a, quite a beautiful model, but we don't see her much anymore. No, we don't. All, all right. <laughs> But do you think it's a good idea to bring pictures? No, because your face isn't the same. Absolutely. It's not the same. And, and when someone brings me a picture and says, I, I want her nose, I tell them, I can't give you Angelina's nose, unless you're Angelina. I can't do that. What I can do is improve your nose, and I can take the objectionable features, which might be a large hump, which might be a bulbous tip. Your nose might be over-projecting. That means... You have a, a nose that comes too far out from your face, or your nose might be too long. That means the distance from between your eyes to the bottom of your nose near your lips might be too long. So we might change those things. The angles of the nose might be wrong. And yes, Susan. So, Dr. Perry, when I was in college, many girls had a signature nose. They were all the same. They were done by a particular doctor. Everyone labeled that nose. It was a geometric figure, the doctor's yeah, name. Right. And why was that okay? Well, you know, that was in the 60s. All those people are still... That wasn't in the 60s. That was in the 70s. Okay, you're younger than I'm sorry. Susan looks about 40. Uh, how old are you? We 40. Won't, we won't. Okay. <laughs> All right. No, but, but signature noses are still common. There are plastic surgeons that do everybody the same. I know plastic surgeons that do every single nose, and you can see them on the street. You know exactly what doctor did that nose. That's not good. That's not good. And it, it's a limitation of the doctor. It might look good on some people. But it doesn't look good on everyone. And I always say, you know, the, uh, the rhinoplasty that fits uh, everyone fits no one. You know, it's wow. true. Yeah, very profound. Profound. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Okay. She's a journalist. And, uh, 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 we'll have to keep those remarks to myself. But, uh, but seriously, when we do a rhinoplasty, it's an extremely individualized operation. And when we return from our break, I'm going to tell you how I individualize that operation and how it's different in every single person. I'm Dr. Arthur Perry. I'm with Susan Warner, my co-host today. This is What's Your Wrinkle here on WOR. The phone number 800-321-0710. 800-321-0710. We'll be back after these words.
What do you want from your skincare? I know what you want. You want products that actually do what they're supposed to do. And you want skincare that's simple to use. You want skincare that's non-toxic. I'm plastic surgeon Dr. Arthur Perry, and I've created exactly that. Great skincare with effective ingredients, inexpensive, and easy to use. And to look great, you only need four products. I've got daytime SPF 20 skin protector. That's your foundation. I've got a moisturizer and a nighttime serum that contains vitamin C and A, fruit acid, antioxidants and skin brighteners and once you've used my clean time soap well you're never going to be able to go back to the cleansers that have been harming your skin for years i want everyone to try my products so for a limited time i'm giving wor listeners 20 percent off go to drperrys.com that's d-r-p-e-r-r-y-s.com or give us a call at 844 dr perry use the wor21 code for the discount to learn more listen every saturday evening at 6 p.m right here on W-O-R. You're listening to What's Your Wrinkle with Dr. Arthur Perry. What's your wrinkle? And we're back. This is Dr. Arthur Perry, board-certified plastic surgeon and host, co-host of What's Your Wrinkle, along with host. Susan Warner. Oh, no, no. you're. A, you're I'm just a sidekick, yeah, Dr. Perry. Yeah, a sidekick that you know an awful lot about cosmetic surgery, about beauty, about aesthetics, and that's why I like talking to you. And you're a good questioner. You keep me honest on this show. So uh, thank you for taking your Saturday evening and, uh, and joining me on the show. Dr. Perry, I have a question. When we talked about signature nose reconstruction, uh, many people who had those noses want them redone. Is that problematic? Yes, that is. In fact, a rhinoplasty is considered the most difficult operation in plastic surgery, as I, as I told you before. And it's difficult because I can do the same operation on you and your twin sister. Do you have a twin sister? I don't. No. Okay. If you did, I could do the same operation on both of you and it could come out differently because... Uh, there are vagaries of healing between patients. There are uh, different steps that I do in the rhinoplasty. I cut cartilages. I contour them. I shape the bones in a rhinoplasty. I do all sorts of things. I put stitches in between pieces of cartilage. I move cartilage from one area of the nose to the other. So let's say you have a boxy tip, but you have a narrow middle third of your nose. I can take cartilage from your tip and sew it into the middle, but the cartilage can warp, the cartilage can move, the cartilage, the stitches in the cartilage can come out, lots of things can come out. You know, there was a guy named uh, Michael Jackson. We all know Michael Jackson, of course. And although he never acknowledged that he had his nose uh, operated on, the only way his nose could have gone through all those changes over the years was either exposure to a nuclear bomb or rhinoplasty. Uh, we make fun of that, but, but really, uh, we talked last week about talking about your surgery. Uh, it was pretty obvious that he had his nose done. If you look at the photographs uh, over time, when I wrote Straight Talk about cosmetic surgery, by the way, I had a series of six photographs of uh, Michael Jackson that I wanted to publish in the rhinoplasty uh, chapter. And the folks at Yale, who were the editors, uh, the publishers of the book, said, nope, you're not going to do that, not in a Yale book. So, okay, maybe the next edition will uh, we'll put the pictures of Michael Jackson. Nevertheless, the, uh, the second nose that's operated on is so much more difficult than the first nose. And I tell residents when I operate with uh, trainees at Cornell, Columbia, Rutgers, and, uh, and now Einstein coming up, I tell the residents that when I lift the skin off of a nose that's been operated on before, 
it's similar to you. If you took this piece of paper, Susan, and I glued it to this table, and I had to then, my challenge was to lift that piece of paper off through the glue without ripping the paper and without damaging the table. It's extremely difficult to do, but that is exactly what we need to do in a second rhinoplasty because the scar that connects the skin and the underlying tissues is like the glue. And it's extremely difficult to, uh, to do that, to go ahead and lift the skin. And then we have to undo what was done the first time and then redo it. And often in a second rhinoplasty, we don't have enough cartilage. Remember I said a few minutes ago that we have to actually take cartilage and use it as a graft. A graft is tissue taken from one part of the body to the other, and in this case, one part of the nose and put in another part of the nose. Well, if we don't have enough in the nose, I have to go to your ear. Let me see your ear, Susan. Oh, you've got very nice ears, and so I can go ahead and take cartilage from your ear. Sometimes we have to go to the rib. We don't like to use farm material like plastics, like silicones in the nose. Now, in Asia, they are often used, but in the United States, they're rarely used because our experience in the United States is that they can extrude. That means they can actually come through the skin. And I've taken those out of people in the past where they've actually, they come into my office and they say, I had a rhinoplasty in Korea three years ago and now I've got this little bump on my tip and I look and it's the piece of silicone coming right through the skin. And the only thing to do is to take that out, let things heal, and then reconstruct the nose in a, at a different time with your own tissue. It's a very difficult thing, a secondary rhinoplasty. So, so um, um, we consider rhinoplasties to be the most difficult procedure in plastic surgery and second rhinoplasties to be really, really difficult. And there are plenty of plastic surgeons that simply will not do second noses for that reason. Uh, they'll do the first nose and then if they uh, need to do a second nose, they'll send it to someone else. I actually like doing second noses. They're a challenge. They're very interesting to me, and uh, they're an intellectual challenge and an artistic challenge to do. So uh, now I'm going to get a lot of phone calls on <laughs> Monday morning, people with completely botched rhinoplasties uh, for me to fix that rhinoplasty. Well, You're up for the challenge. I'm up for the challenge. All right. So now, have you heard about the liquid rhinoplasty, Susan? Yeah. Is that the in when you use injections? Yes. I yes. thought you weren't in favor of that. Yeah, you know, uh, but we, we alter our techniques over the years. You know, if I only did what I was trained to do at the University of Chicago when I finished my residency in 1987, if I, wa if I were, yeah, almost, a, almost a usage error there, if I were to only do the techniques that I did in 1987, I'd be a pretty lousy plastic surgeon. So we go to our meetings every year. I go to usually two plastic surgery meetings. The national meeting was just in San Diego last month. I read the journals every month. We, uh, we have all sorts of uh, conferences at Cornell. We have our conferences several a month, and we learn new techniques. And so in this month's journal, Aesthetic Plastic Surgery, uh, and the other journal, Plastic and Reconstructive Surgery, there were two papers just coincidentally in th this month, on using filler to do the what's called the liquid rhinoplasty. So it's something that I didn't like the idea of. I've done them in the past, and I stopped because of the rare risk of blindness. Uh, you know, it's a terrible uh, thing, obviously, if you were to inject something in the nose and, uh, and for cosmetic reasons, and at the end of the uh, procedure, the person could not see, or even worse, That's have horrible. a stroke. But it does happen. It's very rare. We're talking 
of injections like that, one in half a million, maybe one in a million. But if it happens to you, it's a disaster. So in, uh, in the journal Plastic and Reconstructive Surgery this month, uh, in fact, next month, it's the July issue, hasn't even come out yet, but we can read it online. And uh, the paper was a safe non-surgical rhinoplasty procedure. And uh, some plastic surgeons from France worked out the details of how to do this in a much safer way, using not sharp needles like we've used in the past, but what are called cannulas. And these are blunt-tipped needles. And we can actually uh, use one entry point in the nose and reach all areas in the nose. And we can make the nose a little larger if your nose is small, or we can hide the hump. If it's, uh, if it's not too big a hump, if your nose isn't really big to begin with, we can, uh, we can change that middle third of the nose that's narrow in so many people. And in fact, that second paper showed how we can use filler to actually improve your breathing. Interesting. We use, uh, there's a technical term, and I'll, I'll say it only because some people really might be listening and, say, and thinking, well, I can't breathe real well through my nose. Maybe it's uh, the middle third and not a deviated septum or something like that. So something called a spreader graft is something that I use all the time. I take cartilage from the tip of the nose or from the septum or some area, and I place it within a certain part of the nose to improve the breathing. And now there was a study that showed that it's effective if we use filler in this. Would uh, that help this. snoring? Uh, probably not. The oh. Snoring is complicated, and it involves tissue in the back of the throat. Mm. The uh, You remember the Saturday Night Live skit for the American Uvula Association? Uh, I know, don't. That was a great skit. You know, the uvula in the back, that's the, the unappreciated organ in the back of your throat. The uvula responsible for so much snoring. You know, snoring is a complex thing, and it's the province of either an otolaryngologist, an ENT doctor, or a pulmonary doctor. And uh, you know, plastic surgeons don't get into that too much. But, but no, those spreader grafts won't help it. But uh, if you, uh, here's, here's what you can do, Susan. If you take your fingers, first breathe through your nose. I'm, uh, I'm giving you the sound effect here, breathing through your nose. And then if you take your fingers and you hold your fingers on the side of your nose and pull out, much the same way that a breathe right nasal strip does. If your breathing is improved, then your breathing could be improved by a spreader graft, or in this case, the liquid rhinoplasty and a particular move. So, you know, it is a, it is a fluid thing. You know, all of plastic surgery is. We're constantly learning. We're constantly changing. Uh, you know, years ago, I didn't do one procedure, and I do it now, and I said it was unsafe years ago, and it's safe now, because we learn, and we change our techniques. And the same way, I will now, once again, start doing the liquid rhinoplasties for selected patients, because uh, the papers have shown it to be safe if it's done in a certain way, and effective. So there's your new information, Susan. Was that a pun when you said it's fluid? <laughs> Hopefully not. No, no, your nose is not fluid. Uh, but, but in the uh, the pollen of the Hamptons here, <laughs> it, it well could be. So, <laughs> all right. I'm Dr. Arthur Berry. I'm with Susan Warner, who's uh, getting me to try and think of these things tonight. 800-321-0710 is the phone number. 800-321-0710. No, let's go ahead to our second break. We'll be back after these words. 
these last two years have aged us terribly, but masks are coming off and it's time to get back out there. I'm board-certified plastic surgeon Dr. Arthur Perry, and I'm here to help. I smooth forehead wrinkles with Botox and creatively use fillers for wrinkles around the mouth. Filler also plumps shrunken lips, and filler smooths the jawline. It makes your chin and cheeks more prominent, and along with lasers and Althera, even improves upper chest lines and aging hands. And when it's time, I'm a surgeon. I perform short scar, face, and neck lifts to help restore your youthful appearance. My offices are in Manhattan on Park and 73rd and in Somerset, New Jersey. Give me a call at 833-PERRY-MD. That's 833-P-E-R-R-Y-M-D. Let's sit down and come up with a plan to get you looking and feeling better. Check me out at www.perryplasticsurgery.com. And don't forget to listen to me every Saturday evening at 6 p.m. right here on WOR. You're listening to What's Your Wrinkle with Dr. Arthur Perry. What's your wrinkle? You hear that dog in the background, by the way? That tells you that we're doing the show, not in the studios. Mike, we have a dog on the terrace. Hopefully he's not going to jump. I hope Noah is in the studio doing the engineering. Oh, that's how Noah brought back famous moments in What's Your Wrinkle history with the dog howling. In- <laughs> I think it was a uh, siren he was howling at. Oh, oh, really? Okay. You know, I've done this show with live pigs as a studio audience. My little Albert, who is uh, in a pig farm. Uh, anyone uh, want a pig, by the way? We're trying to place... My pig. That's a that's a story in itself. Another day we'll talk about Albert. And but if how, you do want a pig, if you do want a pig, I'm here to talk to you. But he can't be eaten. He's a pet. He's a wonderful pig. But you know, when you move to Manhattan from New Jersey, you just can't take your pig with you. So uh, that's what happened to me. All right, I'm board certified plastic surgeon Dr. Arthur Perry, host of What's Your Wrinkle. I'm co-hosting tonight with Susan Warner, who is. Uh, actually quite an expert at many aspects of cosmetic surgery, aren't you, Susan? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. All right. So uh, th- we're going to talk about breast implants. You might not be an expert in that, but maybe you are. And, uh, y- you know, we are in an era now of, uh, of a new era in breast augmentation where we've, uh, we've for years done silicone gel implants. And in fact, about 1962, the first one was on the market. And we had all sorts of problems initially with implants. Uh, Initially, they were uh, really hard. They got hard. People didn't understand why breast implants hardened over time. And so plastic surgeons and industry made a big mistake in the 1960s by saying, well, it's the shell of the implant. The shell is hard. So let's make it really thin and really soft. Enormous era error era in that era that's a tongue twister because when we softened the shell of the implants they ruptured and they all ruptured all those implants that were put in the 1960s and 1970s tended to rupture and when they rupture not a good thing because they have to be taken out i've taken out silicone gel that has spread from the breast to the abdomen, I've taken it out in the neck, I've taken it out in the underarm, and all the way down to the middle of the arm, because when that implant ruptures, the silicon just kind of keeps on going until you have it taken out. So if you suspect a rupture of your implant, uh, you'll certainly want to go to your plastic surgeon early, and, and in the meantime, don't sleep on your chest, if you think. Now, if you have a saline implant, that's salt water. And if that ruptures, you just got to drink a water. There's no urgency. 
Uh, so I saw a woman this week who I put in implants 21 years ago, and one of the saline implants ruptured. And uh, you say, well, that's terrible, right? But, well, no, you know, it's kind of like uh, a tire on your car. They're not lifetime items. You know, you can't drive on your tire for 500,000 miles. They're going to they're going to rupture at some point. And the same thing with your silicone implant, whether it's a silicone saline, which is salt water on the inside, or silicone rubber or, or gel on the inside. They all will rupture. Now, the new ones that I'm putting in now are called gummy bear implants. And that is a different texture. So when they ru rupture, the silicone doesn't run anywhere. It doesn't go down your arm, into your abdomen, anywhere. So there's still some urgency to take out the, uh, the gel, uh, but, but not a, uh, it's not as urgent as the old days. But uh, if someone is worried about a rupture, you want to go to your plastic surgeon right away. So, uh, so now, the breast implants, silicone breast implants, were taken off the market for a long time, about 16 or so years, and put back on the market, I think it was 2011. The FDA looked at the implants, and they said they are safe. They issued a statement. They said they're safe. They're back on the market. And they did advise women to have MRIs. And in those days, the MRIs, uh, we were told, tell our patients, MRIs should be done every three year, first at three years after implantation of the implant. Sounds redundant. And then every two years thereafter. And that's what I've told my patients. So starting in 2011, that's the case. Have you heard about that, Susan? I have not. As a matter of fact, um, I do have implants, and I have not been told that. I was told that after five to seven years, they should be checked in an MRI. Okay. So, so the 2011 FDA, you can hear that dog. That dog is still, <laughs> yeah, the dog is still out there, you know. I, I don't know. It's, uh, it's, it's the official dog of What's Your Wrinkle, uh, his name is Winston. Well, anyway, no. So what happened in 2011 is the FDA did advise plastic surgeons to tell their patients every three, first at three years, you're supposed to have an MRI, and then every two. Now, they were looking at the integrity of the implants. I, on the other hand, think it's very important that you have MRIs at least every other year because mammograms are not as useful as we would like if you have implants. There was a study that showed that anywhere from 3 to 60% of breast tissue is blocked by breast implants when looking at the mammograms. And if you're unlucky enough to have a breast cancer behind even the 3%, then you lose because it's two years before you can feel a cancer after you see it on a mammogram, on average. So the FDA came out with that in 2011. But they revised their recommendations just last November. And now they've, they've loosened that a little bit. And uh, we're going to go into that in a minute. But I, I brought this up because in last month's, and actually this month's journal, Plastic and Reconstructive Surgery, which you're beginning to read. I know I see you looking at that Nighttime journal. Nighttime reading. Yeah, it's good. It helps everybody get to sleep. But the, they looked at... Uh, they, they surveyed plastic surgeons in the, in the United States to see what they are advising their patients. And you know what? It turns out that with those 2011 recommendations of, uh, of an MRI at three years and then every two after, only 7% of patients were doing that. 7%. 
And you know the reason why. Do you know what, why? Probably because insurance isn't paying for That's it. Right. They are not paying. In fact, I had a patient uh, a couple weeks ago. She's probably listening tonight. She had, not, not from me, but she had a ruptured implant, a suspected ruptured implant. I wasn't her original surgeon. She came to me because she had a little pain in her breast and some numbness, and the numbness changed, and it uh, went back and forth to down her abdomen, and it, it was of great concern. So I said, well, I think you have a ruptured implant, but I can't tell for sure, so you're going to have to have an MRI. The insurance company denied it. Denied it. So MRIs cost anywhere between one and two thousand dollars per breast, and uh, you know she's going to have to make that decision. I'm trying to appeal that for her, but if they say no, she's going to have to make that decision. Is she going to pay for it herself? And I always say, if you have breast impl implants, you have to take the cost of MRIs into consideration when you put the implants in. And and I tell my patients and those of you who are listening to me who have implants by me. You know I said this to you. If you're not willing to pay the cost of the MRIs every couple years, then don't have the augmentation. Don't have the, the reconstruction, whatever it is. Yes. But, Dr. Perry, don't overlook the fact that many of this is reconstruction for either prophylactic or breast cancer, whereby you're not getting mammographies. The breast tissue has been removed. So is that a different protocol? Uh, it is because then we're only concerned for the most part, unless your oncologist says otherwise. We're Prophylactic, only, there isn't an oncologist. Well, often there is. Maybe not in, uh, in the case of you or whoever it is you're talking about. But, but, uh, but certainly, um, when we're looking at the integrity of the implants, it's different than if we're looking at your breasts for possible exactly. cancer. Exactly. So what's the protocol on, on reconstruction from breast cancer or prophylactic? Okay. So right now... Right now, uh, the protocol that the FDA just came out with, uh, well, first of all, they now have boxed warnings for breast implants, and that is their highest level of warning. And what they say is that breast implants, the box warning says, first of all, breast implants are not considered lifetime items, that there is a chance of de developing complications over time, that you might have to have more surgery, uh, and the new one that they said also is that breast implants, particularly uh, textured implants, are associated with a type of lymphoma, a lymphoma, which is uh, terrible, but uh, very, very rare. And they're still saying, yes, go ahead and, uh, and have implants, but be aware that that's a possibility. There have been 700 women in the history of breast implants to have this lymphoma, and probably 20 million women have implants since 1962, so it's going to be very rare. But here, in answer to your question, the new recommendation by the FDA, they've relaxed it a bit. They're saying you should have your first MRI between five and six years after having the implant, and then every two to three years afterwards. That's the recommendation now. And we now put it in writing to patients, for our patients, that because that's now an FDA uh, recommendation officially. So it's silly not to take the recommendation. But you know what, Susan, the problem is it's one thing if you have breast reconstruction. Uh, then if you have an issue, it's it's likely that insurance will pay. But exactly. if you but if you've had implants for cosmetic reasons, right. they're not going to pay. Right. They're just not going to pay. 
even with those FDA regulation uh, recommendations. So that's a problem. And so I say here to you listening to me, if, uh, if you're considering implants, do it only if you're willing to pay for the MRIs. Otherwise, you're the one that loses. It's not your doctor. It's not the implant company. Uh, you know, it's you because you're the one that needs surveillance, uh, particularly women between the ages of 35 and 75, the peak years for uh, breast cancer, right? Right. Okay. All right. So FDA now has its new recommendations. You need to follow that. And uh, most plastic surgeons are not having their patients do this, and most patients are not doing it. So just don't have implants then if that's the case. I'm board-certified plastic surgeon Dr. Arthur Perry, host of What's Your Wrinkle? And, uh, Noah, let's go ahead and take our next break. 800-321-0710 is the phone number here at WOR. We've got our studio audience dog back in the studio. Winston is here to ask a question. When we come back from our break, 800-321-0710. We'll be back after these words. What do you want from your skincare? I know what you want. You want products that actually do what they're supposed to do. And you want skincare that's simple to use. You want skincare that's non-toxic. I'm plastic surgeon Dr. Arthur Perry, and I've created exactly that. Great skincare with effective ingredients, inexpensive, and easy to use. And to look great, you only need four products. I've got daytime SPF 20 skin protector. That's your foundation. I've got a moisturizer and a nighttime serum that contains vitamin C and A, fruit acid, antioxidants and skin brighteners and once you've used my clean time soap well you're never going to be able to go back to the cleansers that have been harming your skin for years i want everyone to try my products so for a limited time i'm giving wor listeners 20 percent off go to drperrys.com that's d-r-p-e-r-r-y-s.com or give us a call at 844 dr perry use the wor21 code for the discount to learn more listen every saturday evening at 6 p.m right here on W-O-R. These last two years have aged us terribly, but masks are coming off and it's time to get back out there. I'm board-certified plastic surgeon Dr. Arthur Perry, and I'm here to help. I smooth forehead wrinkles with Botox and creatively use fillers for wrinkles around the mouth. Filler also plumps shrunken lips, and filler smooths the jawline. It makes your chin and cheeks more prominent, and along with lasers and Althera, even improves upper chest lines and aging hands. And when it's time... I'm a surgeon. I perform short scar, face, and neck lifts to help restore your youthful appearance. My offices are in Manhattan on Park and 73rd and in Somerset, New Jersey. Give me a call at 833-PERRY-MD. That's 833-P-E-R-R-Y-M-D. Let's sit down and come up with a plan to get you looking and feeling better. Check me out at www.perryplasticsurgery.com. And don't forget to listen to me every Saturday evening at 6 p.m. right here on WOR. You're listening to What's Your Wrinkle with Dr. Arthur Perry. What's your wrinkle? And we're back. This is board-certified plastic surgeon Dr. Arthur Perry co-hosting tonight with Susan Warner, journalist, college counselor, podcaster, What's the name of your podcast again, Susan? Susan is Suddenly Single. Susan is Suddenly Single, and you got to listen to it on iHeart. It's really quite tantalizing. Uh, you know, if, uh, if you're in your 50s or 60s or 70s or 80s, maybe suddenly single yourself because of divorce or uh, your spouse passed away or something like that happened, 
uh, you'll want to listen to her podcast because it is really enlightening. I listen and I love it. All right, so we are talking tonight about all sorts of cosmetic surgery things. Uh, we talked about breast implants, but, uh, you know, I do a lot of facelifts. I do an awful lot, and I love doing facelifts. And, you know, so there was a good study by your friend, Dr. Matarasso, who uh, you've known for about... He was my brother's college roommate. Isn't that something? And, and just by coincidence, and he was on the show a couple months ago. We, had, we interviewed him. I should have him on again because he published a paper in our journal this month, and he compared the facelifting techniques from 20 years ago to the facelift techniques that are being done now. So now, wild guess, Susan, what do you think? I mean, here we are. We're, we're high-tech plastic surgeons. It's 20 years later. Computers are incredible now. We've got lasers. We've got a, what do you think the difference between a facelift 20 years ago and the facelift now is? I would think they're far more advanced, maybe even robotic. Incredible. There are no, <laughs> thank you. There are no robotic facelifts, no. Uh, in fact, the interesting thing about this is that the facelift that's, that was done 20 years ago is basically the same facelift that's done today. There are some changes, though, uh, but basically the same. So in the old days, 20 years ago, so we're talking right around the turn of the century, the century. And I had already been doing facelifts for uh, 13 years at the turn of the century. So I was uh, still early or mid-career, whatever. I'm still mid-career because uh, yeah, my father operated until he was 91, right? So what the heck? Uh, but anyway, um, the facelift surgeons today that answered this survey, there were uh, several hundred of these uh, surgeons, and... Uh, the trend was to do less to the second layer than they did years ago. So in a typical facelift, I do a two-layered facelift. We lift the skin up, and uh, we expose the fat and the muscles of the face. And for those of you who are facelift gurus out there, uh, it's called the SMAS, S-M-A-S. I'm not going to tell you exactly what that stands for. It's a big, big, long word, but the SMAS in uh, in most cases is manipulated and when i tug on the smash the jowl comes up and it's a the dramatic moment in the operating room after we've lifted the skin uh the nurses the medical students the residents who are in training love to see this moment when i lift the smash and up comes the jowl so and i tend to do that by lifting it well the uh the trend now is not so much to do a two-layer facelift, but to simply kind of reef up that tissue. So that's a, that's a change. Uh, you know, and, and one of the other changes that has occurred over the last few years, 20 years rather, is that we no longer operate on the nasolabial folds. You know what they are, Susan? I do, those lines around your chin, right? Close. I'm not going to hold that against the nasolabial <laughs> fold. You're thinking of the marionette. Oh, line. right, right, right. Okay, the nasolabial no. folds are the lines between the corner of the nose and the corner of the mouth. And if you look at a 14 year old, they have them, but they do deepen over time. And a lot of people are very upset about their nasolabial folds. And I often will use filler in the office, like uh, Restylane, Juvederm, one of those products, to plump up to make those less deep. Um, when we do a facelift, we can lessen those also, but they're not going to be gone. If you had a really deep nasolabial fold 20 years ago, many plastic surgeons 
would extend the facelift to the nasolabial fold. And it turns out that wasn't the best thing because it's very bloody in that area of the face. So we got more bleeding complications. And we also distorted the corner of the mouth when we did that. So now the trend in the last 20 years is to rely on either filler or in the last few years, now we're doing more fat grafting. So we're taking fat from the belly. And I'm doing one of these next week uh, in a facelift that I'm doing. I'm taking uh, fat from the belly. Most people have a little bit of extra. Let me see. You have no extra fat on your belly, none, or your hips. So, uh, you know, you've got a problem if you wanted a facelift because there's nowhere to go. But most people have plenty of fat on their belly and plenty of fat on their, uh, on their hips. You know, I did a fat grafting to someone's lip once. She was uh, a, a, an, a, had an actual program on TV, an exercise program, and she had no fat of her belly, none. No fat of her hips, no fat of her buttocks. I actually had to numb up both buttocks just to get enough fat to put in her lips. That was before the uh, the filler era of she wrestling. She was in good shape. She was in incredible shape. And, uh, but anyway, uh, it was uh, remarkable. But most people have plenty of fat, and I can just spend a few minutes harvesting the fat and numb it up a little bit, take it, and process it just a little bit. No, we don't add chemicals. It's not that kind of processing. We uh, Now the technique is to smush the fat Smush, that's a technical term. We smush <laughs> it and we make it, we kind of sort of grind it up. We pass it through smaller and smaller filters until the fat basic, basically becomes a liquid. We can put it through a small needle and then we inject it into the nasolabial fold. So that sort of thing, we might also inject it into the, the lips. We might inject it to other parts of the face. That is becoming much more popular. So that's interesting. In this survey, it was really interesting that uh, when, we, when plastic surgeons were asked, do they use antibiotics, still one-third of plastic surgeons do it the wrong way. They give antibiotics after a procedure. So I don't know if you've ever had a cosmetic surgical procedure, but we don't want to know, Susan. You don't have to divulge that. But those of you who have had cosmetic surgical procedures, were you put on antibiotics after surgery? Guess what? No science to that whatsoever. In fact, complications of uh, overuse of antibiotics are things like diarrhea or rashes or even worse. We can get uh, some terrible side effects from, uh, from antibiotics. There's no reason to do anything other than to give you antibiotics at the time of surgery. That's been shown over and over and over again. But in this survey, a full one-third of plastic surgeons continue to give people antibiotics for a week after facelifts. So isn't that interesting? find that interesting. I do, I do. Overuse. The overuse. And, uh, and also, a whole bunch of plastic surgeons gave no, uh, paid no attention to the risk of a blood clot in the, uh, in the leg. And when we have a procedure, like a facelift, where it's a four-hour procedure, and by the way, in this survey, I always find it interesting because we're looking at large amounts of uh, plastic surgeons and how they do it. Uh, and most plastic surgeons take around four hours to do a facelift, which is what I take to do a facelift. Uh, but uh, about 20% of plastic surgeons take as long as six hours to do a facelift. It's a long time to be under anesthesia. Yeah, but one of the, one of the changes, and, and thanks for saying that, over the last 20 years, one of the changes is the trend 
towards IV sedation, intravenous sedation, keeping the patient awake. Mm -hmm. So in my career, I rarely use general anesthesia for my patients. And the reason for that, by the way, the reason we want uh, sedation, that's like propofol, mm -hmm. you know, the, remember the Michael Jackson drug? Well, well, don't they use that in colonoscopies? That's correct. And, and most people, I remember my colonoscopy, Dr. Ira Jacobson did that about a year and a half ago. Remember last week I said, I talk all about my, uh, my procedures. So Too I much information, yep. Dr. Perry. And they said to me, they said, okay, we're going to start in a second. Okay, we're done. That was it. And it was a great 12-minute sleep. <laughs> uh, that's right. Now it's 20. But, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, with a facelift, four hours, we can't get you that deep for that long. But propofol is a wonderful drug and, and other drugs like that. So... 20 years ago, 20 years ago, half of plastic surgeons had their patients under general anesthesia. Now only 20%. So that means 80% of people are having intravenous sedation now. So why? Why do we want sedation as opposed to general anesthesia? There's two good reasons. The best reason is because 20% of patients get nauseated with general anesthesia. And if you get nauseated after a facelift, you can only imagine if you're sitting there at night, 10 o'clock at night, home after your surgery, and you start vomiting, mm. and uh, you know your, your spouse brings you to the toilet and puts your head down, that's not a good thing. That's how you bleed after surgery. And uh, bleeding after a facelift is one of the complications we do not want. We don't want any complication. We certainly don't want that. Because if you bleed after that surgery, you've got to go back to the operating room. Not so good. So um, the other reason, Susan, is mechanical. When we're under general anesthesia, we have to use a breathing tube. Mm. And a breathing tube in your mouth will distort it. Well, It'll distort yeah, your face, it, no? It can. It can. But it actually just gets in the way. It gets in the way because I have to operate on your neck. Let me see your neck. Do we have little bands? We do. Oh, boy. <laughs> okay. So uh, with a facelift, I make a little <laughs> – she's looking at me like, you're telling all my secrets okay. on the radio. It's okay. I put myself here. Okay. All right. So we make an incision underneath the chin, and I lift up the skin of the neck, and I suction that. And most people right now in this survey, most plastic surgeons do liposuction. And uh, it's a higher percentage than years ago. So in almost every facelift, I'll make a little incision and suck out the fat of the neck first. I can suck out as much as eight ounces of fat from the neck. But what if it's not fat and it's bands? Well, okay. So, you know, it's interesting. Uh, it's bands in almost everyone, but you might not know that if you've got a lot of fat in front of those bands. So I suck out the fat. If you don't have fat, we don't have to do the suction. Mm. But we do have to lift the skin up and expose those bands. Those are the muscle bands. Do you know the name of that muscle? <laughs> All right, she doesn't know. <laughs> All right. That was not fair. It's <laughs> called the platysma muscle. Platysma. Platysma. And it's a platysmaplasty. But I call it a band lift because that's a lot easier to say than platysma. So those muscles are in everybody, and in fact, they were bands when you were 20, Susan. But the problem is, as your skin loosened over time, and as it thinned over time, then you see those bands. Those bands that those little turkeys that we saw this morning had, Yes, they really amazing. Those things were like six inches long, uh, hanging down gobblers. from there. Yeah, those little gobblers. Well, most people don't have that, but I've had people have these uh, turkey gobblers an inch and a half, almost two inches uh, long. I've seen them. Yeah, so I expose those. I sew them together, and then we go to the cheeks, 
and we lift the skin and we do the second layer as we talked about earlier and that is my facelift and uh, you know what we're running out of time i'd like to talk more about it as i do every saturday at 6 p.m right here and uh, those of you who want to know more about this it's uh it's uh, periplasticsurgery.com and uh if you want the products, by the way, Susan, you love those products. Love your products. It's drperrys.com, D-R-P-E-R-R-Y-S.com. And stay tuned because David Folk Thomas is coming up with the news. The best broadcaster in radio right after this show. He's going to stay here with WOR. We've got all sorts of great programming, mostly the news. And then uh, you can go to the podcast for my show on iHeart. All right, Susan, thank you so much for co-hosting. Thank you, Noah. Always a great experience with Noah, the consummate professional. We're going to be back 6 o'clock next week. Have a good one, everybody. Bye-bye now.